0: Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the days at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, But to those who were disobedient, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. This is the
1: third chapter in the book of Hebrews. And if you have been here for the past few weeks, you, you know we're going through this book Uh, chapter by chapter, and the reason why I want to do this book at this time is, as a church, as a culture of Christians together, we have spent many years in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, and we've now acquired a competency in the Old Testament scriptures so that when we hear these things referred to, we know what they mean. We we remember those stories. Now, if you do not, that's okay. I'm gonna cover them in a little bit of detail, but not fully. And I would encourage you, uh, throughout the message, there will be references on the slides. If you uh, are unfamiliar with a particular reference or something that is being talked about or, or I'm not too clear on, you can always ask me, but more importantly, uh, you can take a look at your scriptures. Uh, they are they are here for your edification. So, um, I want to begin today by looking at this in the context of the previous few chapters. So, I will briefly review what we've ta- talked about for the last two weeks, but then we're going to move into an engagement with Moses and Christ compared together, not contrasted together. And one of these ideas that is a major paradigm in the book of Hebrews is that the writer is writing to a group of people who are a continuation of the covenant that God established with Israel. There's a continuity or a continuation between those covenants, although there is a change, but that continuation is a continuation of a people. It is not the covenant which continues, but rather a continuation of the people of the covenant, namely the group or people group that God calls to himself, the, the house of God as it's referred to. We're going to look at how Moses and Christ are compared, not merely contrasted, although there is a, a difference, but we're going to see how that actually informs all of the rest of how we understand these warnings. If there is no continuity between Israel and the church, that is to say, if the church was not also in Israel, as Paul argues, not all of Israel are Israel, if the people of God have had a complete start over, then how does the writer reason that these things which happened in the past also serve as warnings for this new group or the group that he's writing to? And so we'll see that it's actually not a new group, but really a continuation of God's redemptive purpose on the earth, working with the people, calling them to himself. From that place, we're going to reference the rebellion which took place in the wilderness. And that rebellion, uh, we've talked about at length at Meribah and at Massa, how Moses does not uphold Yahweh as holy. And the rebellion will be examined in a very short way. But I, I just want to impress upon you that these things were given for you as a parable. They are a life parable or a covenant redemptive parable which God enacted, according to Paul, enacted for our edification. They were done as an example for us. And so it's not merely that that the Old Testament teaches about Christ, as we've seen in this church. We've spent m- much of our time in the Old Testament Old Testament looking at types, shadows, pointers forward. But also the New Testament says it's not merely that, but it also includes warnings for the New Testament uh, or the New Covenant people. And understanding those warnings, we see the danger of apostasy, and we see what apostasy really is. Apostasy is not living in sin, although that comes from apostasy. Apostasy is a turning away from, a falling away from, God himself. It's a reversion back or a return back to those things which were left behind. It's a renunciation of those things which are considered to be the grace of God. And so I want to look at the end of this, how this actually informs a great and vital important aspect of the Christian life, which is assurance of salvation and confidence before God as you, as you walk before him. How do you know it, it is that God's grace is really being effective for you? How do you know that you are taking heed to these warnings? And so I would just encourage you that although we're going through the book of Hebrews and for, for a few weeks it has been somewhat heavier stuff. Uh, I'm reminded of Back to the Future where, you know, Dr. Brown always gets mad at Marty when Marty says, that's heavy. Dr. Brown says, What's, is, is something wrong with the earth's gravitational pull? This is heavy stuff. It's very weighty, it's very important, but these warnings are real warnings, and I just want to encourage you that although this might not sound very encouraging, it actually really is encouraging. It's encouraging because it allows you to have certainty of the grace of God being effective in your life, and it also allows you to be circumspect in a way that does not lead to despair. The greatest danger of reading these passages is to read them in a way that is not corresponding with the truth of the gospel as it's understood throughout all of the scriptures. It must be understood in the context of those who are putting their faith in Christ. And This is why, at the end of this chapter, the writer reasons so we see they were unable to enter, not because of their actions alone, but because of their unbelief, which was married to their wrong action. And so the gospel is maintained in these warnings. These warnings are not to be received, just as a caveat for the prior weeks and today. These warnings are not called, they're not given, they're not to be received as a call to arms. They're they're a call to faith. They're not a call to action in that I must read my Bible more, I must pray more, I must whatever. It's rather a call to understand what is the root cause for all of these leaves of the tree and to sever the root if the root be bad and to put the root right in good soil namely the foundation of christ therefore i want to look at the beginning of this uh verse uh verse one and two talk about this these warnings as applying to brothers before we look at that, I want to review very briefly. In Hebrews chapter 1, the the Hebrew writer is warring against two major doctrines within Judaism. That is, uh, the angels were revered and worshipped and feared in Second Temple Judaism as it continues to drift away from the faithful worship of Yahweh. And so the, the writer establishes the divinity of the Son. And we saw how that actually is wh- the way in which we are informed to be humble. In the second chapter the writer then makes an appeal to these Hebrew, uh, Hebrew readers, Hebrew Christians, and he makes the appeal to them to maintain their faith in, in Christ and to not revert back to apostasy or to revert back to Judaism. That is, there was a real and present danger at this time in the first century, and that real and present danger was an, or an, an encroaching influence from what we might call those who are Judaizers, And these Judaizers maintained that faith in Christ and walking with his people, becoming a part of the church was not enough, but that you must receive circumcision. Or uh, alternatively, if circumcision does not apply, you must eat in a particular way. Or if that doesn't apply, you must behave in a certain way according to the law of God with mixtures and things like this. Paul makes it very clear. These cultural provisions The ordinances contained within the commandments, the larger subsection within the larger context of God's law, those have been set aside for they were only pointers to Christ. The cultural barrier between Jew and Gentile has been removed and now there is one house that God has brought uh, to, to be manifest on the earth and that house is the people of God. At this time, there is a real danger of people turning from Christ and seeking to, as Paul says, uh, add to Christ therefore cutting themselves off from Christ paul makes a wordplay saying if you receive circumcision not if you receive circumcision apart from your uh, operation that is you if you were circumcised as a baby it doesn't mean you've fallen away from Christ many many uh, americans are are currently you know american males are currently circumcised that's not what paul's talking about he's saying if you pursue circumcision as something needed to justify you before God. That is, you say, oh, well, Christ justifies us, but we also have to take on this circumcision, or we also have to abstain from certain meats, or we also have to this, that, and the other thing. Those things which were understood to be the ordinances within the commandments, those things have been set aside. And at this time, what the writer is doing is he is exalting the glory of Jesus Christ and providing warnings to them to not swerve away from or to veer off of course from pursuing God in faith. And so I want to look at that in the context. He uses the word at the very beginning in this in verse 1 he says therefore. And so it's right to understand this is a continuation of his thought. He's saying because Christ was divine and he became humble in the incarnation, he walked among us and paid a debt that we could not pay, that is he died on the cross offering up his body as a right sacrifice for those who were to be called brothers. Therefore, the Hebrew writer calls these people who put their faith in Christ today, brothers. And he then begins to say that they have a participation in the life of God. He calls them to meditate on Christ's faithfulness. He says, therefore, holy brothers, notice he's not talking to the world. He's not talking to non-Christians, that's important. He says, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He invokes the meditation on the deity of the Son, the suffering of the Son, the humility of the Son in his incarnation. He says, you should think about Jesus and how he was not only with God eternally, but he uh, he took on God's mission. That is, in the Father's sending, the Christ receives that commissioning and obediently goes. And then from that, he operates in faithfulness. And though he was God, he suffered terrible things from sinners. Nevertheless, he's, we're told to think about him. We're told to emulate him. The Hebrew writer calls him the apostle and the high priest of our confession. That's an interesting phrase, apostle. Think about that. There's not, not often do we think of Christ as the apostle, but he is an apostle, Verse 2, who was faithful to him, that is the father who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. In considering Christ, we're inspired not just to imitate the fact of Christ. We're not supposed to simply be enthralled with, amazed by Christ, The fact of him, that is to say, his coming, his deity, his humiliation on the cross, his right sacrifice that he made. It's not simply to say, oh yes, Christ was a faithful son in all the things of God and he rightly represented the Father and we put our faith in some sort of fact of Christ. We do, we receive the fact of Christ, but we're told to emulate the faith of Christ. What do I mean by the faith of Christ? It's not often a a thing considered today, but Christ in his obedience to the Father is living an example of faith-filled obedience. That is, his obedience was not just external. It wasn't just right behavior extemporaneously from him and his circumstances. It was contextual obedience obedience that was fueled by faith in God. And that fueling of that faith is building on the promises of God. We're told to emulate that sort of obedience, a faith-filled obedience which causes us to persist in God. The incarnate son of God is shown in this verse to have a twofold office. One who is sent by the father, that's what apostle means, a sent one, and also a high priest. And so as Christ is a mediator to the people of God, he not only represents us to God, that's the one we most often focus on because that's something that was very much needed. And it's right to enjoy that aspect, but also he represents God to the people. They were not able to come before God. We, we know this in, in many times in the Old Testament that the people were warned not to approach. In fact, even in the covenant uh, that God gave them in the sacrificial system, only one person who was designated one time per year could appear before God and the Day of Atonement, coming into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood of a bowl upon the mercy seat making an atonement not only for himself but also for the sins of the priest and the sins of the people. And so Christ is not simply a high priest who goes and stands for our sake, but also he is one who not only goes into the Holy of Holies, but before going in, he came into the land and he walked among us. And so he represents God as the apostle of God. And representing God as the apostle of God, he shows what it is like to have a faith-filled obedience. Throughout Christ's entire ministry, including, not limited to, but including his teaching, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the healings, the deliverances, and his rebuke of false teachers in the public square, Christ faithfully represented the Father. You see, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't just misguided. They were actively perverting the religion among the people of God. They were actively, Christ says, laying burdens upon men. Laying burdens. They were actively doing evil and teaching wrong things about the nature of the Father. And perverting the, the form of the covenant from one that, was done to be, one that was to be done in faith to one that was to be done merely to receive right standing before God but as Paul argues, they did not know the righteousness of God, therefore they substituted their own. Christ comes as the apostle of God and shows how it is that one can obey God in faith. It's not merely an external obedience that's rigid and formalistic or or tokens of obedience, it's faith-filled obedience. It's obedience and confidence In the Father. That's how Christ goes to the cross. He doesn't go begrudgingly. He goes in joy because he knows that we have us, and he goes with confidence, knowing that he goes and is going to be vindicated by God who judges righteously. So therefore, we see at the cross, he continues to represent the Father, but unlike what he does in his public ministry, really at the cross, he, we see the greatest example of his operation as, a, as the high priest, when he goes by the Spirit into the Holy of Holies and offers himself for the people. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to him self. And so it's not simply the Son doing an atonement, it's also the Father operating through the Son in bringing the world to a reconciliation in him. So I want to look at the idea here that there is a continuity in the, between the covenants. Today we have been infected by what I call residual dispensationalism. And what I mean by residual dispensationalism, I'll explain both. Residual, I mean, we don't really believe that. Even in this church, we don't believe in dispensationalism. And I'll I'll explain what that is in just a second. By residual, I mean, it's in the ether of the Christian world in which we live in. If you've ever spent any time on Facebook, you know, there are certain people who post edifying things, and then there are other people who post things like, you know, click aim, like if you, you know, agree with this, or type amen if you really are a follower of Jesus, and I love you, but I'm never going to do that. Uh, there, is, there is stuff in the ether of the cultural Christianity in which uh, we live in, which has elements of dispensationalism in them. And though you might not actually believe in dispensationalism, and you might even not know the term, you have been infected by its mode of thinking in various ways. Now, what is dispensationalism? Dispensationalism is a doctrine which says that God has changed the mode of operation and interaction with his people at various times in the covenants. And so dispensationalism sees each covenant as a silo or a particular way in which God operated. And until the end of that operation, uh, he, he operated with them consistently. But then at the end of that covenant, when God makes another covenant, he then changes that operation and sets aside those things which were done at the beginning. And so dispensationalism, its major focus isn't just that there are unique individual disconnected covenants in the old covenant. That is, Adam's covenant was different than Noah's covenant, which was different than Abraham's covenant, which was different than the covenant to Phineas, no one ever talks about that, nor the covenant to David. But, but actually that they were just individual silos, whereas covenant theology understands them as a continuation of the ever-unfolding plan of redemption, which was settled for eternity. The lamb is as if slain from the foundations. And so dispensationalism's main point is that at, through Moses, God operated with Israel in a certain way. And in order for them to be justified by God, They had to obey the law. And this obedience of the law was maintained not as regards the operation of the heart, but really it simply focused on the fulfillment of the letter of the law. And dispensationalism basically buys into the lie that the Pharisees and Sadducees were trying to promulgate. They they buy into this mode of understanding of the law, not understanding that that was actually a perversion of the law to begin with. As Paul argues in the book of Galatians that the promise was given to Abraham, and then the law, that is the recording of God's righteousness and what what would be identified as disobedient versus obedient, that was given 430 years after the promise came to Abraham. And then Paul reasons that the promise cannot be set aside by the law. That is to say, it is not as if God has operated in one way in the old covenant and now, because of Christ, he totally hit the reset button and undid all the bad problems that he did in the old covenant and now he's operating correctly. Uh, That is not at all true. Now, what what do I mean by residual? I mean, you may not believe that. You may believe, rightly so, what the New Testament teaches, that it is always by faith that the saints of God have stood before him in righteousness. It is not by their own effort, but rather by believing in and trusting in the promises of God. Even though you may not believe in dispensationalism, maybe you've never heard the term before today, it still pervades the, the major approach to the New Testament. And so when we come to the New Testament and we see comparisons between Old Covenant and New Covenant events, or those things which took place in the time of Israel as a nation, and those things which are written to the church, we do not see a continuity. and we we see you know side A, side B, they're not part of the same uh, event, they're not part of the same operation of God, but rather they're completely different. Now, why is this a problem? The reason it's a problem is because that's not how the New Testament presents the reality. The reality is that the New Testament writers, the apostles, they constantly appeal to the Old Covenant events as having moral application to the New Testament, to the church. And so by making a comparison, they are not setting up a contrast. But I'm afraid that when we read verse 3, we see a contrast. For example, it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now indeed, that is a comparison. But it's not saying that Moses was not considered worthy of glory. It just says that Christ had more glory. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. But I want you to understand that we're talking about the same house. Verse 4 For every house is built by someone but the the builder of all things is God. The Hebrew writer uh, proves or provides evidence for the continuity between the covenants, showing Moses and Jesus as operating on the same house, namely God's house. It doesn't say there was this one house named Israel and then God completely demolished it and then refounded it on Christ. No, that house was always founded on Christ. The house of God is nothing other than the assembly of the faithful saints of God. We've covered this in great detail other, other places and other times. And I don't have a time to go there completely. But if you want to see how the New Testament talks to the saints of God, he says, you are living stones being built upon a foundation. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians says, no one can build uh, on a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is the foundation of Christ. We don't have many architects. We have a few people who work in the trades. I've never seen someone take an existing house, and unless they're moving it to a new location, and even then it takes great difficulty, I've never seen someone swap a foundation out from under a house, completely remove it, and then put a new foundation in it without moving the house off. You can't swap the foundation out from under a house it doesn 't work now, of course, you can go to great lengths to to make it work technically, but it doesn 't work it 's not it doesn 't make sense to do it 's not the way in which God is talking about building things. therefore, when he writes to the, the various epistles which are written to the Christians. They're written to the Christians as if they are part of God's house. And each one of these verses uses references that come straight from the book of Deuteronomy, which were things uttered to the people of Israel. In in Protestantism, we have a doctrine called the, uh, the priesthood of all believers, a great and right doctrine, which maintains that there is no longer, because God has fulfilled the type of priests in Christ himself, uh, there is no longer a priest class and a laity class, or that is, there is no longer a human mediator which is necessary for you to come before God because you have been atoned for by Christ and you can, by the grace of God, appeal to, to God through Christ. And so that doctrine which is contained in 1 Peter 2, it says that they're a holy nation and a priesthood. It's a kingdom of priests. They're kings and priests together. And this is the great marriage of the two main threads of God's leadership in the Old Covenant. Priests, and to some degree prophets, and of course kings. He calls them to be a holy nation. But guess what? That's exactly what Moses said to the people of Israel. You are to be a holy nation. You're to walk before God as his special possession." And so we see there's a continuity between the covenants and that continuity is proved by the fact that there is one house, namely God's house. Verse five, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, what is he referring to in that verse? He says, those things which were to be spoken later, if you remember from the first week, we saw that at the very beginning of Hebrews one, it says that, God has spoken to us in many times and many ways, but now he has spoken through his son. What the Hebrew writer is saying is that Moses told the people of Israel true and right things which concerned that which was to be spoken later, namely the incarnate word of God uttered by the father into the world. Verse six, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The contrast is here only as regards hierarchy. That is to say, Moses was a servant, he wasn't the heir of the house, but Christ is. And now that Christ has come, something has changed indeed. It says that we are his house, referring to that allusion in First Peter, referring to Deuteronomy, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Namely, it's right to boast not in your works, but it is right to boast in the gospel, it's right to be confident in the gospel. And understanding that we are members of this house, we are bricks in the wall, if you will, we are to understand the continuation of the covenant as a thing that helps us, without which we don't understand the Bible. Really, Christ is showing himself as the heir of the house. That is, he is the son of the house. And the heir, of course, has much greater glory than a servant, right? If you've ever, perhaps you you don't know much of servants, uh, but they're not treated with the same honor as sons. I don't really know of a cultural example other than Downton Abbey for you to go see a visual parable, but although the servants are not treated disrespectfully, they're not given the place of honor that the family's given. Namely, when Christ, the heir of the house, comes, he brings with him a greater glory to the covenant. And indeed, the new covenant as being a final word from God, is indeed greater, but nevertheless, it's the same house. Moses, both through the execution of judgment against Egypt and the warnings given to the people, faithfully testified to the severity of falling away from Yahweh. All of the obedience, which is which the dispensationalists uh, pervert into a wrong approach to the law of God, all of that obedience was to be done in the context of the deliverance which is already come the law does not the law is not given before god brings them out of egypt grace always precedes precedes the law nevertheless moses by god's commission established the people he did this by showing them the glory of god through the judgments which he wrought on egypt and also the miracles which he performed by god's grace in the wilderness he establishes the people also by giving them promises of his provision and guidance. That is to say, he, he tells the people of Israel, God will go with you. God will fight your battles for you. God will go up as your vanguard and also your rear guard. He establishes the people of Israel and he creates a context in which they ought to obey in faith. In all of these types of things, in Moses' faithfulness, he was a lowercase builder, lowercase b builder, representing the uppercase b builder. That is to say, he was a faithful one, he faithfully served in the house, but he was not the true builder. He was merely operating on behalf. And so Christ, in coming as a son, he also establishes The house. He builds up the house and provides for it, not only the foundation, but actually makes progress upon the foundation. And so Christ is bringing a greater glory to the covenant. Therefore, because those things which were the substance to which the shadows pointed, to have come. That is to say, because everything which was prophesied about through the types and symbols and allusions in the Old Covenant, because that has come, therefore the Hebrew writer says, all the more we must pay attention to not fall away. The writer invokes Psalm 95. He quotes from the Septuagint, not the uh, Masoretic text, something that's a little bit tricky for, for you if you've never heard these ideas. There are two copies of the Old Testament, which are quoted in the New Testament. One of them is the Masoretic text, which is Hebrew. And the Masoretic text, uh, in most of our Bibles, and the church has always operated in this way ever since, I believe, the second century, we translate from the original into, uh, into... English or into the language in which we're translating so sometimes when you see a quote from the Bible and it uses different words don't get thrown by that it's not uh something that you need to be worried about necessarily um the, what's going on is back before the time of of Christ there were a group of 70 uh Israelite uh, leaders Pharisees scribes etc and they accomplished a translation of the both the um both the uh um, Pentateuch and the Talmud, and um, they, they translated that into Greek. Here, the Hebrew writer is quoting from the Greek. That's, that's the only reason when you heard Psalm 95 and then you heard Hebrews 3, that there were a few phrases that were different. Now, those phrases are not meaningfully bad. Uh, it's not a translation error. It's not as if the Bible has an error. I just want to encourage you that, that that is quoted in an authoritative way. He doesn't quote from error. He quotes from an authority. So he says in in, uh, verse 7 Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, I want you to think about this. Psalm 95, as we heard today, was said to the people of Israel. It was said to the people of Israel at, at a particular time, namely the time of David after the establishing of David's tabernacle, but it was not said to the people in the wilderness. So the writer is not merely saying that we need to obey just like the people in the wilderness needed to obey, but he's saying we also need to obey like the people who received this warning. So there was event A, which event A was the time in the wilderness in which they rebelled, and then Psalm 95 is event B. That was given to Israelites As a warning for them not to disobey like their fathers. And then event C is the Hebrew writer quoting event B, saying that warning which was given to Israelites applies also to you, because you are still part of the same house. He says, therefore, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. There's one reference which says that God took Israel through the wilderness in order to test them or to prove what was operating in their hearts to see whether they would obey or not. But this type of testing is not the primary testing that takes place in the wilderness. The primary testing that takes place in the wilderness is the people of Israel testing God. That's what he refers to, and then he explains that. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. That is to say, God is bringing a word of judgment against the people of Israel, saying, don't be like your fathers who did this. And then he says, even though I operated with signs and wonders for 40 years, they still put me to the test so as to doubt me. The writer invokes the warning in the psalm as if it applies to his audience, and indeed it does, and indeed he says it's even spoken by the Holy Spirit. Now, Psalm 95 was not, at the beginning of Psalm 95, it does not say the words of the Holy Spirit, right? We, If you've ever spent any time in the book of Psalms, you see sometimes a psalm of David, a psalm of Asaph, a Maskell, th- these various uh, introductory phrases but if you turn to Psalm 95 in your Bible, it doesn't say at the beginning a psalm of the Holy Spirit, does it? No. <laughs> it's a trick question. No, it doesn't. What the Hebrew writer is saying is that the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of the psalmist, wrote a prophecy, a warning of judgment, should they fall away and then he calls that something that was spoken by the holy spirit that is to say he upholds the understanding that the psalm has divine authority it is not merely the writings of david it is the writing of god himself in the rebellion israel grumbled against god and his servant moses and indeed you see these times if you remember back to especially the time at meribah and massa they moses is is being you know persecuted by these israelites and then he goes and appeals to god and god says actually they're rejecting me not you this happens with samuel as well doesn't it when when god is appealing to samuel and samuel says lord they you know god they want a king and and they're persecuting me and then god corrects samuel's thinking saying no it's not because they're rejecting you but they've rejected me as their king So here we see that they are rebelling against God. They turn aside due to their unbelief and they doubt the promises of God. If you ever want a great one chapter summary of what the old covenant is about, I would encourage you, take 10 minutes, sit down with Psalm 78 and read the whole thing through. It's an amazing, wonderful summary of what happens in the old covenant, how God pleads and appeals to and creates mercy for the people of Israel, yet they consistently turn away even up to the time and including after the time of David, the people of Israel turn away. And so in Psalm 78, it's, it mentions these various things, that God delivered them from Pharaoh and from Pharaoh's chariots, though they still doubt him. Even he sent, even when he sends bread from heaven, they they're hungry in the wilderness and God knows the needs of his people. So he sends bread from heaven and then they appeal to him to give them meat. And so he sends quail from across the Red Sea and literally the bible says that the quail would fall like dust remember this idea that god caused the gnats to fall on egypt and it says that they he called it called down gnats as if they were dust on the people the judgment against egypt For Israel becomes a blessing for them. He literally, if you wanted to imagine it this way, you're hungry, you want something to eat, and like all of a sudden, whoppers from heaven start falling all around your tent. Hallelujah! (laughs) If if you ever want to know how hard it is to hunt, especially in the wilderness, uh, just talk to John Gray about how long it takes to find a deer. Now, I just want to make this plain to you. God didn't even require them to hunt. The the quail would fall down, and you just have to like step on it or grab it and cut, you know, butcher it. Not to be too crass, but the, the point was they didn't even have to really try. They were given everything that they possibly could have needed, and yet time and again they rebel against God, saying that He will do us harm that obeying him means nothing, that he's no God at all, we should turn to these other gods of the nations around us. And they also doubt whether he will fight for them. Finally, at this moment of uh, the waters at Meribah, their unbelief and rebellion erupts in such a violence that it even provokes Moses to sin. And for this one sin alone God says to Moses because because you did not honor me as holy that is to say Moses was faithful up until this point doing everything that Yahweh had commanded and Moses was told to speak to the rock and it would uh, it would pour forth water from him but Moses acts out a prophetic symbol saying that the rock is Christ and so he strikes the rock indeed he strikes it twice confirming the severity of Moses' rebellion in his own heart. And Yahweh says to Moses, because you did not honor me as holy, because you did not obey, not just the intention, but also the external, not just the inward motivation, but also the outward action, because you did not obey, you will not lead these people up into the promised land. That one particular failure of Moses was was shown for what it really was, was true rebellion. And that rebellion, though he, he repented of and did not operate in after that, that rebellion is indicative of the fact that we need a much greater Moses. Indeed, we have one, namely Christ. So this puts Moses off. And just as the psalm was given as a warning to the Israelites who came after that generation, so also the writer quotes it as being authoritative. He says, after quoting the psalm, he then summarizes and says, "'Take care, brothers.'" lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Just as the Israelites before them were warned, these Christians, the true Jews, Paul says Christians are true Jews, they are warned. Notice the Hebrew writer addresses his audience as brothers. He does not address them as Christians who are in Christian name only. He doesn't address them as those who are possibly out in the world. He's writing a letter which is to be read in a church, which is something we did this morning. That letter which was to be read in a church is then given to those who are named brothers. And so we begin to see the difference between those who are merely external members of the covenant and those who are true members of the covenant. We are in a church building. We have many people in attendance today. And yet, we're all under the understanding of that we are those who share in the faith of Christ. We have some operation of the grace of God in us. And yet, we have, in our own experiences, knowledge of people, whether it be ourselves or friends or former acquaintances, who have apostatized. They've turned away. What are we to make of all this? What we are to understand is there is no... There is no surety in mere external forms of religion. You do not have confidence before God because you attend church. You do not have confidence before God because you read your Bible. You don't have confidence before God because you do religious things. Those are no proof of truth operating in your heart at all. He says Therefore, take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil and unbelieving heart. And so he applies this warning, and he says this in order to provide a right warning that was possible. They were under the threat of apostasy, turning back to Judaism. Those who are in the community of the redeemed can fall away from him. Notice what I am saying. Those who are in the community of the redeemed can fall away from him. Notice it doesn't say that they will not come to know God, but rather it says that they will fall away from the living God. You cannot lose what you don't have. You can't fall away from God unless you are near God. Those who fall away from God are those to be uh, to be understood as never having truly participated in God. Those in that community are given a charge. Look at what it says. The answer to whether or not someone is operating in true faith or is merely attending religious events or uh, operating in the life of a community is the exhortation, verse th- 13, but exhort one another every day. That is, if you see sin in your brother or sister, and that sin is persistent, ongoing, unrepentant, Uh, continued to to operate in, you must exhort your brother to faithfulness. This applies to the sisters as well. Every once in a while, I'm somewhat convinced that they want the good things to apply to both the brothers and sisters, and they don't want the bad things. Brothers and sisters are included here. You must exhort one another. You cannot allow your brother or sister to operate in sin and not speak against it not to warn them about that is to allow them to fall under this threat of falling away from the living god exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin no one ever when we talk about those who are in the life of a, a community no one ever drifts away from god in an instantaneous apostasy great apostasy that is a falling away from Christ a renunciation of the doctrines of grace a renunciation of the scripture as being authoritative and helpful uh, the the renunciation of Christ's work on the cross none of that just happens in a day it begins very subtly very slowly and the hebrew writer says it begins by the deceitfulness of sin it is not a theological drifting but rather a ortho doxy drifting or an orthopraxy drifting that is to say the deceitfulness of sin begins to infect it begins to pervade it begins to take over like leaven put in a lump it will eventually the yeast and leaven will spread throughout all the dough therefore take heed that's what the hebrew writer is saying Now, look at this very closely. The Hebrew writer addresses how these Christians ought to understand faithfulness to the covenant of God, not as a mere external thing as we've talked about, but one that is internally motivated by right faith. Verse 6 and verse 14, look at this closely. It says in the second half of verse 6, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. These are the scriptural basis for the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which we talked about a little bit last week, and I want to talk about a little bit more in detail today. The understanding of how do I know if I'm truly a Christian is not, am I reading my Bible? Am I giving a tithe? Am I doing works of mercy? Am I Uh, praying for an hour a day, am I performing miracles in the public square, am I witnessing the gospel with authority and power? Those are not at all the signs that the Bible uses to give us the the rubric for testing ourselves, but rather, indeed, those are the leaves of the tree. To understand the root, we must understand what faith-filled obedience is, and this is an understanding of a continuation look at look at this closely. We are his house if indeed we hold fast, not if we attain to something else, not if we uh, advance, but rather he says, if we hold fast to our confidence, understanding the perseverance of the saints is understanding that if you are truly saved, if you are truly one who the grace of God is operating on on upon you will persist in your belief you will persist in faith this is not a repudiation or denial of the gospel of grace which is that those who are saved are saved by faith alone but rather it's a exaltation of that doctrine he says in verse 14 we have come to share in christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end the pattern of indicative and then proof, that is, he says we have been united to Christ if we hold, or this has happened and therefore, or consequently therefore, is wholly consistent with the rest of scriptures. All the rest of the scriptures present this doctrine, not simply Hebrews. If we do not hold fast to our confidence, if we deny the confidence which we, which we formerly claimed, then we do not have true confidence. We are not a true part of God's house. If we lose that original confidence, we are not true partakers. Read these in a logical negative. Verse 14, for we have not come to share in Christ if indeed we abandon our original confidence. The idea is not that you add works to the confidence or the faith that you have. Confidence is from the Latin confide with faith, confidence with faith. It is not an adding works to your faith, but rather a persistence in that faith. This is the nature of true saving faith. And so we we use this idea of true saving faith as to contrast false faith, which is not any faith at all, but rather a false claim to faith. Whether your obedience seems exemplary or if your walk is beset by continual although repenting against sin, sin that you hate and sin that you war against, whether or not you are having a good day or a bad day, the understanding of the authenticity of your faith is based upon the object of your faith, not your performance. And this is actually a very important message because we have, uh, God's graced us with a number of really mature young Christians. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly impressed uh, when i When I talk with some of you uh, about your your zeal for God and your desire to hunger for the things of God, your desire to acquire knowledge of his word and and put in in practice the things of his spirit there 's a, a genuine hunger for the Holy Spirit in this church there 's a genuine hunger for knowledge it 's very seldom that those two things meet uh, as as uh, As the Proverbs say, they they kiss each other. They meet face to face. They ought to be married in churches a lot more than they are. And we have that going on. And so what I want to encourage you is this is such an important thing. And it's not simply for those who have weakness in their walk. This is just as important as those who have been graced by God to progress a bit in their walk. The reason being is if you get distracted from the object of your faith and you begin to allow your assurance to be based on your current and ever-increasing maturity in the faith, then you will eventually stumble and fall because that is a wrong foundation and God will himself not honor it and allow it to be challenged. If you are advancing in the faith, that is to say, you're you're beginning to read your Bible, you're beginning to do acts of charity, you're beginning to obey from the heart, you're beginning to do these various things, and you begin to look at the leaves of the tree and forget the root, which is Christ, then you will eventually stumble and you will stumble badly. Because God did not create your works as the basis for your assurance. He established Christ. As the basis for your assurance, this is just as important for those who are still young in the faith and they have just begun to entertain notions of of understanding Christ and those who have walked with Him for a long time. Saving faith is attended by manifold evidences. When I talk about the leaves of the tree, they really are there, there really is fruit. A, fruit, a tree which never produces good fruit is a bad tree, according to Christ. Nevertheless, you must examine the leaves of the tree based on the biblical criteria, not your own. Your own criteria often take the form of external religion, like this person doesn't gamble, or this person doesn't smoke, or this person doesn't drink alcohol, or this person doesn't vote in elections. That's one of my criteria. <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly joking. You should vote. In certain elections, um, <laughs> we'll leave that aside. Your criteria must become God's criteria. That is to say, you must submit your criteria to God's test. I have heard Christians maintain that we do—we know that Christ did not make real wine at the wedding of Cana because we know wine is bad, and because we know Jesus never did anything bad. That was the train of logic which they have supplanted the truth of God's word with. Now that's a doctrinal problem, but there are many more uh, behavior issues or, or ways of thinking about life problems that are of the same nature. It's not as if you can just take your own criteria, reads these certain authors or listens to these certain worship songs or you know operates in these types of gifts and you're really a healing guy so you dismiss the deliverance guy or you're a real you know, physical healing guy so you spurn the inner healing guy. Those can't be your criteria for operating in the faith. Especially if you are someone who has some understanding and knowledge. Paul warns us, he says, knowledge puffs. Knowledge is is not always a good thing if it's not attended to with a heart of wisdom. And so we have to understand that these criteria are biblical criteria. Now I want to give you these criteria very quickly. And I want to say that in examining yourself, which you're told to do, you're told to test yourself, you need to say you need to understand that you do operate in Christ. You do have union with Christ if you meet the test, but if you fail the test, you do not. Now saying that, I'm not saying that each one of the answers you can confidently say 100% this is happening for me, but rather if you say by the grace of God this is true, by the grace of God I'm persisting in this, because it's all rooted in a faith, not just the faith in Christ, but emulating the faith of Christ. That is, you're beginning to obey God as Christ obeyed himself. These are some of the criteria that the New Testament examines as criteria which either establish the veracity or repudiate or re- renounce the, the the false faith. Um, and I, I just want to explain that these are different than the commands that Paul gives, or, or the various epistle writers, over and over again, they will say, you are the household of God, you've been redeemed, you've been brought, you've been sanctified. And then there are commandments to do things. Like, for example, uh, husbands love your wives. And wives love your husbands. Those are commands to do things. These verses are different, logically they're different, because they're indicatives. That is to say, they say, if this is true, then. And so I just want to really briefly talk about them things by which you may test yourself to see if you're in the faith you confess Christ you you trust in Christ that's that's the very beginning of the test is if you believe that Christ is your surety that is to say when you think about it, how do i know that i'm right before god your answer does not go to well i had a good week this week it goes immediately to the the utterance that martin luther is so famous to have to have said that i know one who stands in heaven he has made an atonement where he will be. So also shall I. The idea is that the root of your confidence is Christ Himself. That's one. You confess Christ and you trust in Him. In Him, the second is you're growing in understanding. First Corinthians two: the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God, but only those who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. You begin to understand spiritual things. Everything about the Christian faith is not a persistent and continual mystery to you. That's another indication. The other indication is you want to obey God. This was referenced in the first teaching, uh, in John seven, that those who, uh, those who desire to do the will of God will know the teaching that it is from him. Christ says of his own teaching that if you want to do the will of God, you will receive Christ's t- teaching. And then also First John 2, 3, uh, if you sin, you're disciplined. We'll get to this in, uh, I guess, 10 weeks in, in the book of Hebrews. God proves that you're his child by, by the fact that he disciplines you. And in fact, this is why the natural mind cannot understand the things of God. It makes no sense to the natural mind that a judgment by God for sin is actually a confirming that you are truly a child of God. Never, ever have any sort of glee or confidence in your heart that you got away with sin. That should terrify you. It should absolutely terrify you. Now, I don't mean that all of your sin needs to be publicly exposed or you need a crisis of character or a, you know, being th- fired from your job or losing your marriage or whatever because of each individual sin. But never presume that because God has not brought his judgment or chastisement against that sin that he's not uh, ignoring it, or that, that he is ignoring it. God does not wink at sin. Uh, the other Another test is you don't walk in darkness. If you are operating in persistent sins that you hide from everyone else in your life, if you never have any sort of truth with other Christians, that is a grave concern because you're allowing what the Hebrew writer says to not do. Do not allow an evil heart to operate within your life. And then finally, you love other Christians. These are simple tests which are of a different nature and category than commandments. These are indicatives. So, therefore, it brings us to the question, what if these are missing in you? I, honestly, I can say that some of these still terrify me, and I think it's right to fear God. I think it's right to fear God so as to pursue him all the more. Not to run away from him, that's not the fear of the Lord, that's actually rebellion, but drawing near to God to find grace for these types of things, I think it's right to do so. The question is, what if one of these is missing, or what if you are concerned about them, and you should be? The call is, by the Hebrew writer, is a circumspect removal of evil from the heart. This is why this is not a denial of the gospel, because it's only that God alone can remove an evil heart. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it away. If your hand causes you to sin, it would be better that you cut it off and throw it away than to enter life. It's better to enter life blind and lame than to go to hell with an eye and a a hand. The point is that you can't cut out your heart. Even if Jesus wasn't being hyperbolic, you can't survive the removal of your heart. And so what does this mean? It means that the great promise that God gave through the mouth of Jeremiah of the new covenant promise that is that he would take out their heart of stone and place into them a heart of flesh and not only that he would give them their the spirit of God and by that spirit of God would write upon their heart the very commandments of God so as to be able to perform them from the heart. That is why the Hebrew writer says don't let an evil heart operate in you because it's a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of the, the, uh, the truth of, of Christ. So how are these brothers supposed to heed the writer's warning? They ought to repent and believe in the gospel and remember their baptism. John Calvin, when he talks about surety in, in, in faith, he says, A persistent reminder of your baptism is a great aid. You were called to be one who draws near to Christ. These, are, these people are to consider Jesus and emulate his faith, which was trusting in God who judges rightly. And I'm going to close with 1 Peter 2. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite verses because it talks about the faith operating in Jesus Christ, not merely the faith that we have in Christ, but emulating the faith that Christ himself had in 1 Peter two twenty three and 24. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but when he suffered, he did uh, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would allow us the grace, Lord, to put into practice these warnings, that we would have no room in our heart, that we would leave no room for the flesh, that we would, by your grace alone, be able to pursue holiness, the holiness that you said, without which no one will see God. We ask you that you would give us lives and hearts that are hungry for your word, that are eager to draw near in faith to you. We pray that you would allow us, God, to have wisdom, that we would not persist in sin, nor that we would give it room or space. And also, Lord, I, I pray that you would give our church uh, a, a cultural value on encouraging one another, not in a way that meddles, not in a way that concerns ourselves with the other uh, in a busybody sort of way, but one also that does not dismiss or wink at sin. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would be pleased to dwell in us and in our midst in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.